You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, hello, this is Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. One of the things that I love so much about doing this podcast is being able to introduce you all to people that you may not know about, but who have tremendous impact behind the scenes on the industry, on the images we consume, which is why I'm really excited for you all to meet Camille Darby. She is the VP of brand marketing for the Condé Nast lifestyle brands. That's your allure, bon appetit, architectural digest, glamour, Condé Nast traveler, honestly, all things fabulous. And she has a really interesting backstory. She was born in Jamaica. Her family moved to the Bronx. So she's a New Yorker like me. But her way of familiarizing herself with American culture was through storytelling. So she actually became a playwright first and has this really deep background and appreciation for writing plays, then transitioned from there into the industry and now holds this incredible position where she's doing really incredible work. So I'm excited for you all to hear about her career and how she's thinking about the industry and where beauty is now, but also just from a very personal place. Like, how do you make friends as an adult? How do you think about showing up as your authentic self online? How do you manage a large team, but also maintain your own personal sanity? How does she work out like three or four, maybe five times a week? I mean, I am just blown away by that. She's someone that's ambitious and driven and really cares about the work that she does, but also likes to just have fun. Fun and look fabulous. So I loved getting to know Camille. I think you all are going to really enjoy getting to know her as well. Let's get into the conversation. Camille Darby, welcome to Naked Beauty. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk to you as well. So you are the VP of brand marketing for Allure, Mark Digest, Bon Appetit, Condé Nast Travel, Epicurious, Glamour, and self. All of the Condé Nast publications that are legendary and have, what, 100 plus year history, some of these? Yes, definitely. AD is probably the oldest. And actually, Glamour is not too far behind that as well. But yes, some um, legacy brands for sure. Incredible work that you're doing over there. But then you're also a creative and like a playwright and a fashion lover and a beauty lover. So you're doing all of the things like firing on all cylinders. So I feel like this is going to be a really good chat. Yes, I'm super excited to talk to you about all the things. So let's let's get into it. I'm curious for for you, and this may just be me having you know ten years marketing experience. Work demands so much of us, right? You've got to be responsible for the analytics and the return on investment, but then you've also got to be responsible for the creative work. And at your level, I'm sure you're leading a large team. How many people are on your team? 
actually it's not that big. I have a team of seven. That four is a of- lot of people. That's a lot of people to think about. <laughs> it is. Four of them are my direct, direct reports. And then the other three to report into those folks. So total, yes, seven. But in terms of who I really need to talk to in a day-to-day to get what I need, I have four really, really strong core I call them like my rock, um, four amazing women who are on my team spread across all seven of these brands. And so that's incredible. And it, it it's not a lot in numbers, but it certainly is a lot in volume of work and in all the nuances that sort of take place day to day with all of these different brands. And I think that's the other part too. It's like every brand is so different. Every title, every, t- every title, every brand has its own editorial staff and sort of their own way of doing things. And part of my role is to be a liaison between the sales organization to drive advertising revenue for these titles, but then also sit really closely with the editorial staff to ensure that their vision comes to life through, you know, their voice or the stewards of their voices and trying to pull it all together across seven brands. It's a lot, but it's great. <laughs> and- And often creatives don't necessarily, they're not necessarily motivated by the bottom line. They're not necessarily motivated by a specific revenue goal. Although you know that that's what the sales team is like. So you have to kind of like walk that line. You're managing four very strong people. But then you you do have to think about the people that report into them. But then on top of all of this, it's demanding job. You also do creative work. And I'm wondering how you find the time. And this is a question I have a lot of empathy around because I, working corporate, was trying to balance doing the podcast and my, my full-time job. How do you find the time practically to do it all? So I'm so happy you asked that question because I actually just this week, Brooke, came to a realization that I am not as inspired right now to write plays. I will get back to it. I want to get back to it. I think there is no question about that. And in fact, like ideas are always brewing, like ideas for characters are brewing. Questions that I want to answer through writing is always sort of popping up in my head. But the inspiration to sit down and actually write that right now has not been coming to me in the way that I normally experience it. I had to say that out loud and even saying that out loud to you feels like I'm dishonoring myself to a degree because it's the thing that I've studied my entire educational career. It's what I went to college for and grad school for. And so to say that out loud and then also be okay with saying that is super tough. But the balance for me is acknowledging that truth, right? It's like, I want to create in other ways and I am creating in other ways, ways that I did not expect. So as long as I'm continuing to create and like finding a way to do that and tell stories in different capacities, then I'm good. And I will get back to my storytelling in in this format. And the balance with the work is, it's interesting because so much of what I do, as I sort of explained a minute ago, is being able to tell that story of what these editors want to put through in their vision and being able to tell that story to these advertisers, right? And being like, listen, we want your money, yes, but The way that we're creating content these days is through storytelling. It's through connecting with people and audiences. And how do you do that? And so being able to utilize that skill set to be able to do that makes it feel like there's a little bit of a balance. But the actual physical, like tactile act of sitting down and like typing on my computer and like opening up a final draft software program and writing a script, I have not been inspired to do that. But I pray I get back to it soon because I do miss it. I do. But as a creative, you are creating at these publications, right? Like you exactly. 
you have that will to create and you're getting that fulfillment through your job. And it's so funny when people reach out to me, I was an English major, obviously you have a deep background in, in storytelling and writing, but people reach out to me and they say, I really want to have a career in marketing, but I was like a English major. I'm like, that's literally the best major that you could possibly have because everything is storytelling. Now you have to know how to quantify uh, the success of that storytelling and measure the success of that storytelling to make it successful marketing. But I think that's such a fascinating background to have. In terms of plays, do you have an all-time favorite play or playwright? Yes, August Wilson is my favorite playwright. Can't see it in my home, but I have a few of his posters framed as art in my home. I I know a lot of people think he's super long-winded and the the monologues go on and on and they do. But what I respect so much about the canon of his work, the 10 decades he's covered in all of his plays, it's about really talking like the people in Pittsburgh, which is where he's from. And his characters are all from Pittsburgh. All his plays pretty much take place in Pittsburgh. And I so respect his dedication and loyalty to wanting to keep that true, because oftentimes you get your play put up, you get a production happening and the producers or your director wants to cut, 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 cut. We got to cut this. We got to cut that. We got to keep it within a certain time. And he's like, no, this is my story. These are my words. These are the characters I've created to represent a people that are important for me to represent. And I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. So August Wilson, I would say, is, is my absolute favorite. One playwright that I really love, she's now a TV writer, Katori Hall. Is oh, I'm Katori. Katori, yes. She's you know me personally. Yeah, so I worked, with, I worked with Katori back when I was at NYU. I was getting my MFA and I was writing my thesis play. And she was one of the actresses. She was an actor first. You should pause here for one moment and just explain to people listening who Katori is because people will know... If you have great taste in television, you'll know P-Valley, which is an incredible series that's on stars. But it's about a strip club in the Deep South. And it is so dramatic and juicy and the writing is so good. But she was a playwright first and she wanted more people to see her work. So she transitioned to television. OK, exactly. so, and you were hanging out with her, apparently. <laughs> yeah, way back in the NYU days, Katori was definitely someone who, I mean, I admire her today still. Yeah. And this brings me to beauty because you obviously see the beauty industry in terms of budget and advertising power. They kind of rule everything. I just interviewed Blake Newby and she was like, you people need to understand the budgets that beauty companies have. So we know that beauty is this huge industry and they've got these big budgets and a lot of beauty brands want to do storytelling. I think they all probably want to do storytelling. But very few are able to do so in an interesting way. And I'm so curious for you as someone that understands good storytelling and obviously sees everything, which beauty brands do you think are doing an interesting job of storytelling? Epilogic is definitely one of the brands that I love. I think what I love most about what they do is they're taking different mediums, artistic mediums, and bringing it together with beauty. So for instance, the other day, they just had this incredible event at the Brooklyn Museum for the Africa fashion exhibit. And so obviously fashion and beauty are super adjacent, but to create an event for its consumers to come and experience this exhibit through the lens of beauty, I think is, it's, it's important. It's different. It's not, here's just, here's this lip gloss, here's this serum. It's, here's an experience that's rooted in culture, which I think yes. is more important. Um, we the people, I love Karen. I love what she's doing. I also feel like body care is something that people are asking a lot of questions about, but don't really have a lot of answers beyond like your neck. What do I do with the rest of my skin? And so I feel like I feel like we the people is really sharing that message in a way that feels clear 
and the yeah. products are incredible. Which We The People product do you love? The body gloss. The body, body gloss. gloss. And, and isn't there some sort of like chemical exfoliant aspect to it? There is some chemical exfoliant aspect to it that I love, and that's why I use it at night. But I, it's so luxurious, and it's easy, and it doesn't feel like my sheets are going to be greasy when I wake up in the morning. I feel hydrated, and like I'm glowing. I love what she's doing over there. I have to also say, I'm loving what Clinique is doing. Clinique is doing a lot of events around impact. And shout out to a girlfriend of mine who works over there and she's like leading the charge in a lot of the marketing and partnerships that are happening. But they're popping up at Coachella in huge ways, right? It's not just this like rinky dink pop up that's like, here, get your like, you know, skin tested for blah, blah, blah. It's like really immersive experiential activations in spaces where audiences want to actually engage with the product. I think they were also at the CultureCon in New York recently. I think that the brands that are doing it right from a storytelling perspective are going to where their audiences are. And they're finding them in spaces that are not only beauty spaces, they're finding them in these cultural pockets where people want to be. Like it's it's all sort of like, it's a lifestyle. It's not just here's a serum, here's a lip gloss, and then I'm going to compartmentalize and go do something else. It's like it's all one and all encompassing thing. Yes. And I think showing up to cultural events that align with your audience is such a smart way to activate an audience that a lot of brands don't think of. But I think it's also probably because a lot of brands aren't rooted in culture, you know, and like that's that's also something that consumers have to decide if they care about that or not. I certainly care about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to hear about your entry point into beauty. When did you first start becoming aware of skincare and hair care and makeup? Was it a value in your household? Absolutely. So hair care is interesting. So I was born in Jamaica. I grew up in a little town called Maypen in a parish called Clarendon. But I left when I was seven and I moved to the Bronx. Beauty was definitely something that was important in my home. And I brought up that story about um, being from Jamaica because I had a housekeeper named Pauline and she always did my sister's hair and my hair because my mom did not like doing hair. And she had ended up with two girls with a lot of thick hair. And so when we moved from Jamaica, we we're in the States. My mom's like, I'm not doing this hair. So we got a perm. And this is a story of many black girls who, you know, get perms really early just for ease and for having a, a more smooth sort of like wash day, I guess. So we got perms really early. So hair care was something that was super important. And that was something that I grew up with early. And my sister and I really coveted really long hair. So <laughs> that was that was an interesting, it's an interesting understanding of why we did. Yeah, I was going to um, say the coveting, hair, but, the coveting of long hair is such an interesting thing to reflect on as you get older, because it's like every girl put the towel, you know, the towel on your head and like made it long hair. I think for me, it was like definitely the Little Mermaid was very core. And like, I remember there was a scene where she brushed her hair with a fork. And I can remember like asking my mom, like, why, like, can I just like brush my hair? There were, she was like, you absolutely can't brush your hair with a fork. And I was like, that's what Ariel does, you know? But again, like if I had seen princesses with, you know, short curly hair, I'd be in a totally different place. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's interesting because like I transitioned to natural hair in 2009 and that okay. was by accident. Camille, I'm so happy about this time period because I have not yet broached on Naked Beauty the discussion about the natural hair movement, like mm -hmm. 2009 era, because it was truly a time in beauty history that like needs to be, we could do a whole hour on this. Were you on Curly Nikki? Everybody. Um, black girl, Everybody. long hair. All mixing baking powder and just yes. craziness. 
Yes, everything in my mom's, because I was still living at home. So everything in my mom's kitchen cabinet and in the refrigerator, I had eggs, I had honey, I had avocado, I have, I had a banana, I think. I don't even know what I was doing. But funny enough, like, it was fine. Like, it, my hair was shiny. It was doing what it needed to do. We learned. And we learned. We learned. But I transitioned by accident. And I'm so happy what it happened. I was working out a lot more. And I wanted to, like, really focus on, like, a fitness journey and a workout schedule. And so I was working out four times a week with a trainer. And I sweat a lot in my scalp. And I had a perm. So my hairdresser at the time was like, your hair is breaking because the salt, the chemicals in this, in the product, in the perm, plus the salt, and you're not washing your hair enough, like your hair is just breaking. And I have like really coarse, thick hair and it can like take a beating. And it was like, no. So she was like, here's what we're going to do. I want to like install like three or four tracks in the back of your head, because that's where the breakage is happening, just to give it a break from the perm. And then we'll see what it looks like in three months. And Brooke, when she took out those tracks and I felt my hair and it wasn't completely natural yet, but it was on its way. I was like, oh, no, we doing this whole thing. So then I started transitioning by installs and I would have like a leave out because I was still very self-conscious about like wearing a weave for some stupid reason. And then after that, I got over it because I just started to fall in love with my texture and I hadn't seen it since I was seven. And I'm right. at this point, I don't know, 20 something, early 20s. And I'm like, how am I just now seeing and loving my hair and sort of re reclaiming what beauty and my identity is to my hair now? So many of us have had this experience. And I'm so happy that you also brought up working out and the sacrifices you would have. It's like some people choose to not work out to preserve a certain hairstyle. And that is a reality that as Black women, we have to contend with. And we shouldn't have to, right? We should be able to work out and live the lifestyles that we want to and take care of our hair. A lot of it is self-inflicted ideas about how our hair should look. But I'm curious how you feel about this movement of perms. You know, people are getting relaxer again. And on one hand, I'm all for like beauty autonomy. I'm like, you do you, you make yourself happy. But on the other hand, I worry that all of the work that we did around the natural hair movement, and I'm also sitting here with a silk press, so it's not like, I'm not right. saying like, right, we're, we're both here with our silk presses, but <laughs> it's, it's not to say like, you must wear your hair like this, but I'm curious as someone who went through the process of transitioning and learning to love your hair and the products that work, how do you feel about the return of relaxers? I didn't think we'd be here. I didn't think so either. And I think my concern more so is less about the look of wanting straight hair. I think I love having straight hair. I love having curly hair. I love slicking my hair back. I love a braid. Like I love the versatility and the uniqueness that we're able to, you know, express through our hairstyles. What I worry about, though, is the science and the chemicals and a lot of like studies that are finally now coming out about what these chemicals can do, especially to Black women. And a while back, I was on a panel with some incredible women in the beauty space. One is a chemist, and we were talking specifically about skincare and how knowing the importance of certain clean beauty products, whatever that means, how to define what you know clean is and how to really understand what that is and how that affects Black women in particular as it pertains to like fibroids or you know certain types of things that are specific to Black women and, and the challenges that we have from a health perspective. I'm curious about that piece. Like, what is the education and the language and the understanding around how these types of chemicals lead to a higher rate of X or more prevalent X happening in Black women because of, right? As Black women with with the erasure of the importance of our health as it pertains to beauty. And so that that's my curiosity, less about the look of it and more about like, but what are the long-term effects, you know? Right. And for your beautiful self press, and I, I'm assuming you're still active and working out. How do you think about maintaining it? Or are you yeah. what are you doing it yourself? Are you going to the salon? 
I'm not doing it myself. I have a salon that I go to. Ebony is my girl, Textured Press. And she actually encouraged me to cut my hair into the style that it's in now. So I have a bob and Bobbiana all day. (laughs) I just cut my hair too. But you know what? It's so funny. We're talking about the natural hair movement of like the mid 2000s because there was just this obsession with growing your hair long. It was like people were like, I want to get to bra strap light. It didn't matter what texture. It was like you just wanted long, long hair at all costs. And I was growing my hair out on the twist outs were getting bigger. And, you know, I would still press it like once a year and I'd be like, okay, it's at this. And then I was like, every day I'm just putting it into a bun, whether it's a slicked back bun or a silk press bun. I'm not, it's not even a style. It's giving absolutely nothing. It's giving length. And that's it. That's, there's no point of view here. There's no style. So cutting my hair was like this revelation that it was like, what have you been growing your hair out for all of these years for? For what style? Right. right. It's like, who's it for? And like, what are some of the things that we've internalized about that, whether we're conscious of it or not, that tell us long hair equals X or long hair equals prettier? And there's nothing wrong with long hair or anyone who's aspiring to have long hair. I think long hair is beautiful. I think short hair is beautiful. I think a bald head is beautiful. But I think, you know, investigating like the why I think is important sometimes because I do think you can get super caught up in like, no, I can't trim my ends because I don't want to lose my length. But your hair is, you know, not healthy because you're not cutting it. Like, what is that about? That's the thing that I you know, investigate. But with with cutting my hair into a bob, it was really because my texture was changing. So I was so in love with my texture when I started to see it and to be able to understand how to use it and play with it and style it. And then I think as I've gotten older, hormones, also pulling my hair back in a slick back, that's my favorite style. I love to see my face. So I love pulling my hair back. I've actually stretched my curls out. And Mm -hmm. so it looks like a, a little bit of heat damage, even though I do not do my own presses to go back and answer your question. No, I don't do my own presses. I rarely use heat. Once I go to the salon, I wrap it and sometimes I'll bump the ends if I feel like I need to do that. Or if I, if the roots are getting thicker because I've sweated because I've worked out, then I'll like curl it because it has the volume and so it works. Like it's fine. Like I've been able to navigate it, right? But I had to end up cutting my hair because my texture was changing. And she was like, listen, if you want to do something new and interesting with your style, I think a bob would look great. And I was like, but I'm not about to maintain straight hair. I need to work out. I'm not good with tools. But she's taught me throughout these last couple of years that I've had a bob how to manage my hair and how to still also be able to wear it curly and natural, even though my texture has changed a bit. And even though it's at a shorter length and I'm just overall super happy that I feel really good about how to still have the versatility and still be able to like work out, go to Pilates, do my hit classes, go run, ride my bike, do all those things. Because quite frankly, that's my mental health exercise too, right? It's like this physical workout and stuff is great for looking amazing and sitting in all my clothes. But the the release that I get from going on a run or going to do Pilates and knowing that I'm like actually strong is unmatched. Yes. I also love working out and I'm unwilling to compromise on the hair front for workouts, which is why I feel like I'm in braids all the time. It's like we're just popping back to braids. But I appreciate you sharing that taking this jump and doing the cut was freeing to you because people always reach out to me. They're like, should I cut my hair? I'm like, yes, just do it. It's going to be a great experience if if you're on the fence. I want to transition to your experience in the industry. And and before you were at Condé Nast, you were at Intermix, right? Yep. So you've always kind of been adjacent to fashion, beauty, lifestyle, let's say lifestyle. And DE&I is something that it's like, even now it's like a trigger word. It's like, oof, like, 
it's one of those things that even if it is nowhere near your job title as a black person at a predominantly white company, it suddenly becomes part of your work. Suddenly you are like roped into Black History Month programming and you're like, wait, why am I doing all this DE&I work? Because you care, right? You want the organizations to benefit from you being there. But I'm so curious to hear about your experience doing DE&I work throughout your time in the industry and how you think about a lot of the roles in DE&I being eliminated now at some pretty big companies. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone had a lot of cautious, maybe not everybody. There were probably a handful of people that had cautious optimism around all of the action and the activity that was happening post George Floyd during the pandemic. Companies like scrambling to figure out how to make things black, how to have these like unconscious bias trainings and how to start educating the rest of the company about what slavery is or was and, you know, all of these things. And there was cautious optimism around the fact that there would be change and that the hiring would be different and that the talent pool would be wider and that there would just be more consciousness around the fact that this is an incredibly diverse world that we live in, despite what's happening in the four walls of any company. I think that that cautiousness was there for a reason. I think people were right instinctually to have that cautiousness because we've seen it dwindle and we've seen it die, to be honest, in terms of like the action and the activity. So what I try to do in my position is this. One, I'm super firm on the fact that I am not teaching anybody anything. I am not here to educate you. I am sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I'm not doing it. What I am doing, however, is because I am in a position where I have a team and I can hire if there's an open head, I am pushing HR to send me the most diverse stack of resumes. And when I say diverse, I don't just mean that the person is black or of color. I mean, their background in terms of their education is diverse. I want someone who maybe said they were a dancer or, you know, they come from a completely different place or they have a completely different set of experiences that can often can bring a fresh perspective to the work that we need to do, because that I feel like is the true diversity. I need to be able to be in a room with people who are going to think very different than I think and who are going to offer ideas and solutions that are not the same as everyone else in the room. And that is true diversity to me. So whenever I have an opportunity to hire, I'm always really pushing HR like, okay, you sent me the same five type of people. And, you know, I clearly am careful with my words in terms of how I describe those five people. But like, I'm going to need to see some more. And it's so interesting because the response has been like confusion. (laughs) Like I just I just sat on a panel about career with a bunch of incredibly young women who are black and, and of various races and but mostly people of color who are clearly talented, clearly smart, clearly eager. Y'all not talking to them? Like, how, how, where, what's the recruiting? Let's discuss right. that. So I think that's right. my that's how I try to insert myself in terms of DE and I. I'm just worried about and concerned about the people who I'm able to bring along to help coach. And if that that means inviting them to be on my team because they're qualified to be there, then let's do that. I love that you push your recruiting teams to find you qualified, diverse candidates, because we know that there's exceptional Black talent out there that is so eager to get into the fashion industry, would love to work at any of the Condé Nast publications. We know that they're out there, but it's like you have to be the one to push recruiting to go and find those people. I also think for young people that maybe aren't in a position to hire, you can also go to recruiting and say, I'm connected to this black women in, you know, tech organization, or I'm, I'm in this Facebook group, or I went to Spelman, or you can also tell recruiting that you are willing, you're raised, basically raising your hand and saying like, I know people that are like looking for positions that are diverse. And I think recruiting 
from what I've seen at most companies are really happy to have those connections. Yeah. I, I mean, I- even in college, like I, I went to Sarah Lawrence for my undergrad and my mom knew about Sarah Lawrence, but I wasn't that familiar with it. It wasn't in my sphere, especially going to a very public high school in the Bronx. Like nobody was talking about Sarah Lawrence, even though it wasn't that far in terms of like location. And it was me going to a college fair and them having a black recruiter there and her calling me out and being like, hey, come over here, come learn about this school. And had it not been for that person being there seeking out black faces to go to a predominantly white school, I don't know that I would have ended up there. And I don't know that I could have seen myself at any other college. So I'm like very curious about what my life path would have been had I not gone there. But I say that to say that it even starts there, right? Like it, it and it continues into the workspace, like or the workforce, right? The recruiting is so, so, so important because to your point, like there are so many talented black people out there, black, brown, whoever that want these jobs, but they don't even know that they are or can be considered for them. Yes. And publications right now are, you know, it's a tough time for for the industry and the publications that are able to tell the best stories often have diverse teams, right? Like that's that's what creates interesting content. Out of the portfolio of brands, I would never make you choose a favorite, but out of the portfolio of brands that you kind of oversee, is there one that you feel most connected to like spiritually? For me, it's going to be Arc Digest just because I'm finishing a home renovation. So my husband and I, all we do is just like judge the architectural digest open door, like these people in these beautiful places. And we're like in our like fold out table because we haven't committed to a dining room table, like judging people's homes. I'm obsessed with AD content. I'm right there with you in terms of a favorite that has become one of my favorites because I'm in that space as well, where I'm like thinking about what my next home is going to look like, what I want it to look and feel like. So AD is definitely the destination for that. But I will say that Allure has a very special place in my heart because when I started at Condé, I was only on Allure. I was, I didn't have this bigger portfolio yet. And I believe Allure is probably one of, if not the most diverse editorial staff teams within the entire building. Oh. Jessica Grohl, who I know has been a, a, a guest on this podcast, is at EIC, and she's very adamant about bringing culture, diversity to Allure through the lens of beauty, subcultures, all of those things. And so when I started at Condé Nast, Allure was the one focus that I had. And so I got, it's sort of like how I got my sea legs when I started at Condé. So that's pretty special to me. And I also just like, I love, I love beauty and I'm learning so much about what beauty is for me now in this space of where I am in my life. And I would say there's a, is a toss up between there. And I would say Condé Nast Traveler is a close second because I love traveling and I'm always like, where to next? Yes. And we see it on Instagram and you make it look so fabulous. Congratulations on Best of Beauty Live that I know you just did with the lore. I know that big, incredible events like that don't happen accidentally. They usually take a lot of pushing and long nights and making the case for it. How did that come together? Oh, wow. That was a year in the making. First of all, thank you. That was a year in the making. So a lot of the programs and activations that happen across many of our brands and I say brands, but I mean titles, publications, et cetera, are typically, you know, sponsor led. And so it was really trying to get across to various sponsors across beauty and the health category and the tech category and CPG category to explain to them, hey, we're doing a live event. And it's not like, you know, and no shade to any of the other beauty events that happen, but Allure's Best of Beauty history, it's over three decade history of the seal has real prominence in the industry, but it's time to bring it from just a list to a consumer event. And so how do we do that? 
and do it in a way that feels unique to the brand. And so that seal really stands out. And so in order for us to really cultivate what that story was going to be and bring it to life, we really needed to get through to a lot of our sponsors and say, this is how we're doing it. This is why we're doing it. And this is very much a D2C thing. This is very much an opportunity for consumers to live like an editor for a day. They're testing, they're trying things, all that. And they go home with a sick, 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 sick bag of product. Can I pause, can I pause you there? Camille, I had this really um, big shift in the way that I thought about pitching ideas to brands that you just touched on. What you just said is that you went to the advertisers and said, this is how we're going to do it. And then you invite them on board, right? Versus I think how I used to think about things is pitching to them. What if we did it this way? Do you like this approach? And basically getting their permission or buy-in to do something as a creative and, and business person and marketer to actually go to the person that's writing the check and say, this is how we're going to do it. And this is why we're going to do it this way is a totally different framing of how you work together. Absolutely. Because while it is a partnership, it's still clear that this is this is Jessica's brand. This is Allure. Yes. And this is how Jessica wants Best of Beauty to show up to the consumers. The readers need to understand that this is not like your run-of-the-mill festival with this booth here and that booth there. And, you know, this person's doing this thing that doesn't connect to the other thing. And I think that oftentimes happens when there isn't a very clear vision of what yeah. you want the experience to be. And so we were very clear when we sat with Edit and when we, you know, convened as a marketing team to say, this is what we know we can get over over the line. This is what we know is missing in the space. And this is what we know we sort of like have ownership in. And so how do we put that story forth to our advertisers and say, this is what you can expect. And it was the first time we did it. It was a lot of work and shout out to my team who worked tirelessly on that event from day to night um, to pull it off. And it was a very big success in terms of the amount of tickets we sold. We sold out of the event. A lot of sponsors were very, 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 very happy about the outcome. And right now I'm in a space of like, okay, so next year, what are we doing? Next year, who's that thing on? So I'm, I'm really proud of that for Allure because unlike Vogue that has Vogue World and the Met Gala and Forces of Fashion and GQ has Men of the Year and there's all these huge huge experiential activations that happen across these bigger brands in the building. Allure didn't have that moment. And it was great to be able to be a part of creating that for the brand. Yes. And because you've worked so closely with Allure, you know that there is more products on the market now than one could in a lifetime ever even begin to comprehend, let alone use and try. I mean, there's just so much out there. And you also see it all and you have access to everything. What are your like go-to skincare products? Like your like tried and true, like this is this is my this is my kit. This is my holy grail skincare this product. Yes. So I'm loving, first of all, I have to have a nice cinnamide in my arsenal. I love SkinCeuticals for that. Actually, that's their vitamin C that I love. The nice cinnamide I love is Paula's Choice. But the thing that I've been loving the most that I just added to my arsenal is Dr. Rose Eng- Ingleton's moisturizer. I just got her cleanser and I haven't like used it quite yet. And isn't she Jamaican? She, or she, I, that, that's, that's what I was about to say. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I don't just love it because she's she's, you know, Jamaican. It is top tier product. I think I love the packaging. I also love that when I wake up in the morning, 
I am hydrated, especially as the weather is changing on the East Coast. I wake up and I don't feel dry. And I feel like that's some of the challenges that I've had over the last few months, honestly. Maybe not so much in the summer, but maybe last winter season, I would wake up and just be like dry. This so far has been after I want to say like a week. of. I've been using it for longer than a week. But within the first week, I was like, yes, this is it. There's also a really great serum that I just started using. It's a new emerging brand called Anuli. I hope I'm not butchering that. It's like a it's like a bunch of botanicals and like vitamins and it's like an oil based serum. And I'm not even like an oil based girl serum because I kind of have I don't have oily skin, but I just like have combo skin. And so anyway, so the daily supplement serum and it's found in Newly. And I actually just met the founders. They were at Sip and Slay and I used the um, product. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. This is so beautiful. It's like all these different plant oils. It has sea buckthorn oil in it. And then I went to see the price because I was like, this is so beautiful. I saw it was one hundred and sixty five dollars, which I was like, wow. But also you can feel it in the product experience. Like it feels so luxurious. It is absolutely luxe. It's super premium. And I'm really happy with what they're doing. I actually spoke to the founder two weeks ago, I think. And she's she's awesome. And I love what they're doing over there. So that is new to my arsenal. And I've been using it for like two weeks now. And I actually literally emailed her like, this stuff is crack. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. I love yes. it. And I don't, I don't know. Have we seen, I'm trying to think about a black owned skincare company kind of occupied this space. Like it, it kind of reminds me of Vintner's daughter, you know, everyone was so excited about this very specific blend of oils. And I don't know that I, I can think of a black owned. I can't either, especially at that price point, because she's clearly like rivaling the Lemaire's of the world in terms of the price point, which I think she should, right? I mean, the, the, it's that good. It's high in cost, but I do think the value in the product is is there. So I love it. That's that's one of my favorites. What's your go-to sunscreen? I'm still using Supergoop. Listen, I, we don't apologize for using Supergoop because every time I stray or like try something else, like I'll like it for a bit. But Supergoop is the constant. It's, it's so good. And I, you know how we get that white cast if it's something else. And I'm like consistently rubbing it. Like this thing is smooth. It, it works for me. It's something that I also know that I can commit to every day. Yeah. In any season, which I know is so important in terms of sun care. And, and is it the unseen sunscreen that you use? The unseen sunscreen that I use. I have it in the travel size. I have it in the monster size. I gave it to my boyfriend. He has one too. Yeah. I'm, I'm loyal to them. I have to, I have to be honest. Well, as part of your role, you're always out and about at a fabulous event, looking beautiful with glam. You know, I feel like you do a great makeup look. So I need to know your makeup favorites as well. Okay. Makeup favorites right now. So I just learned recently how to do a proper big girl beat, which I'm super excited about because I just, you know, I knew how to put on foundation and I'm a lip girl. Like lipstick was always my thing, but I really wanted to get into eye makeup and really understand like how to contour and do all those things products that I'm loving right now. I really love what Amicole is doing with these eye paints and these eyeshadows for someone who's learning. Easy, super easy. Okay. I haven't tried them just yet. And I don't know why I haven't tried them. I'm just so intrigued. They make it fun basically to play around with bold colors on the eye. Yes. Have you gotten into the Danessa Myricks, different eye paints? Makeup artists love Danessa. And so I got all of this stuff and I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit out of my league here. <laughs> So I have some of Danessa's stuff. She's wonderful. 
She was also at the Best of Beauty event. I have not experimented yet. I'm not as confident with the eye stuff, which is why I like the Amicole because I'm like, oh, I could just do this and not look like a clown. But (laughs) with Danessa, I feel like that's phase two of my learning in terms of how to apply, you know, eye makeup and do it to a level that I feel confident. But I'm loving that. I'm really also loving Bobby Brown's foundation, especially because one of the things I wanted to achieve in learning how to do my own makeup is, you know, really maintaining a matte look. Like I love a glow, but I want it to glow in the right places. And as I mentioned earlier, like I kind of have combo skin. So I'm usually like oily in my T-zone and all of that. And so her foundation, I feel like has really helped a match my skin tone perfectly, but then also kept me matte throughout the night. And I and I really appreciate that because I always, I, I'm usually very pessimistic about a, a foundation doing what I needed to do. Yeah, foundations are so... They can be amazing or like really bad. I feel like there's no just okay with foundation. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a fragrance that you love? I'm loving Chanel Gabrielle right now. That's it's a classic, but I'm also like I'm very funny about fragrances. I have quite a few in my arsenal, but I've been loving that one lately because it's like it's bold, but it's still very light and it it wears well. So that's that's been that's been getting some use out of me. And when you are kind of putting together a look for an event. Do you think about your outfit first and then the beauty look? Or do you think about your hair? Like, how do you, when you really want to make an impression, how do you go about putting the look together? I love that question. I most likely am starting with the outfit first. I start with the outfit first because one of the things I like to do for fun is try on clothes in my closet and come up with outfits. And sometimes I jot them down in a spreadsheet. So wait, we need to pause here because one of the things that I'm noticing amongst women that always look amazing is that they set intentional time to outfit plan, to mood board, to think about their looks. And I know you're busy. Are you like putting this time on your calendar? Like, how do you, it just happened. Maybe because I'm a mom, I'm like, when am I going to find the time to have fun in my closet and put together outfits? But I but I love that you mentioned putting it on your calendar, though, because I think that's important. If it's important to you to want to do that so that when you are ready to go somewhere, you're out the door quickly, you know what outfits you have in your arsenal that you can just throw on. I definitely think adding time. I put when I'm going to the gym on my calendar, like even if I'm just working out in my house, like I put it on my calendar so I hold myself accountable with trying on clothes. I don't because it's just something that I absolutely love doing. I hate cleaning up after it, but. I do love trying stuff on because I think it's just another creative outlet for me. So if it's like a random Saturday or Sunday, I've gotten all my errands done. And let's say I got a new item in that I shopped for and it's a sweater or it's a skirt or whatever. What I tend to do is I'll take it out the box and I'll try it on. But then I'm immediately inspired to try to figure out what else I might want to wear with it. And even oftentimes before I buy an item, I've already thought about how many times or how many ways rather I can wear it. And so when it comes, I can actually test that out. And then if it works, great. Or if I try something on and it doesn't work, I have a new idea and then I go try that on. So that's how that kind of spirals. And I just genuinely enjoy doing it. And I will say, though, when I do have a family, I don't think I'll be having the time to do it. Listen, you just inspired me to make time to do to do a little closet session because I do think that if you invest the time to plan out outfits, you end up saving time, tearing everything apart when it is time to get dressed for that one thing. Now, when you are in the session of creativity, are you putting on a candle? Are you putting on music? Or are you putting on, you know, a music. background? So Sex and the City is always playing in the background. I've seen, yes. like, else, I have seen the episodes I, like a quadrillion times, but you don't care. Still watch I don't care. Again. So if it's not that playing in the background, it's definitely rap. It's definitely 
something that's going to just get me in a good energy or, or in a good mood. So there's always some sort of like sound happening for me as I'm doing all of this. So that that usually is is what happens. And you're absolutely right about trying on these looks or just having an idea of what you want to wear, because I think part of the challenge that I hear a lot of women have and men as well is like, when I wake up in the morning, I have no idea what I'm going to wear. And then I have to da 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 and I'm going to this place and I don't know. And then what they end up doing is shopping and not really like going through and purging or like looking through the things that they currently have to see where they can create looks and and really start to cultivate a wardrobe that is useful for them. And that's part of the reason why I do it as well. Cause I also like to wake up, shower and leave. Like I'm not, I don't have time, <laughs> I just don't have time to be doing the, the things. One of the things that I've been doing lately and I find helps me a lot is to pull a look together based on a certain essence that I want to project. So I'll be like, this is soft, romantic French girl vibes. And that leads the hair, the makeup, the outfit, the bag. Or I'll be like, this is 90s supermodel glam, right? It's almost like, you know, going back to playwriting, it's like, what is the character? That's still me, right? But what lens is this character kind of approaching the outfit in? And then I kind of use that to determine everything else. That is so fun. I absolutely love that because I think what it also does is like, when you walk out the house, you have a certain sense of confidence about yourself because you've cultivated this look that started as an idea that you're like really like, you know, from A to Z fleshing out and you walk out the door and you're like, this is how I'm showing up today. And I think the best part about looking amazing is feeling amazing. And I think folks take that for granted, I think. And I don't know why, because I feel like whenever I have a good outfit on, you can't you can't tell me anything like nothing you can say, you know. I completely agree. Your dedication to working out is inspiring. Have you always been really diligent about physical exercise? Absolutely not. (laughs) I have been, I've always had like an athletic build. I was super skinny when I was a kid and super self-conscious about it, quite honestly, and developed laid and like all this stuff. But I started putting weight on, I would say, in like my 20s, obviously in my 30s, like early mid 30s. And I was able to get away with it because I had already started off like super slim and like, you know, an athletic build. So I, w- I was able to carry my weight well. But I want to say in like 2018, I went to get a physical and my doctor was like, you carry your weight really well, but you're kind of heavy for your height. And she didn't want to give me the whole BMI scale thing, which is fake. But she she wanted to sort of explain to me, listen, if you're thinking about having children or if you're thinking about having a particular type of lifestyle, these are some of the things you need to consider. And I just want you to know that like you're at this weight, you carry it really well, but here are some things that I'm seeing on your panel. And here are some things that I want you to consider as you walk out of this office. And I was like, oh, wow. okay." And so it was less about the fitness and more about the diet. And when I say diet, I don't necessarily mean like I was starving myself, but I started to cut back on things that I just knew I was addicted to, like sugar. And I knew how that affected. So addicted. I'm so addicted. Are you? So are you not addicted now? I of course. I mean, yes, but <laughs> but I have an understanding of how my body responds to sugar, and not just like sugar, like candy or cake or cookies, but like. When I eat carbs that turn into sugar, like the heavy complex carbs, like pasta, the things we all love, bread, pizza, all just name all the fabulous things you want to eat. I'm at a place now where I have a balance because I'm not going to not eat pasta. Like I'm not, I love food too much. As I mentioned earlier, I'm Jamaican. I'm still eating all of that stuff, but it's just like your balancing. What's, what's your favorite Jamaican dish? Oh, Brooke, this is hard. The first thing that came to mind is curry goat with white rice. 
But I can tell you five other things that are my favorite, but I won't. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there because I actually have a craving for that. And I might figure out how to have that for dinner. <laughs> can, I ask, can I ask you a question about specifically curried goat? And there was this meme that I saw that I didn't understand, but I was like, maybe this is specific to Jamaican culture, but it was Jamaican culture in New York. So a woman was upset with her boyfriend because the woman at the, um, the place that was selling Jamaican food gave him extra curried goat. And she was like, there is a flirtation happening because why is she giving you extra curried goat for free? And I was like, wait, I'm, I'm like lost here. Does that does that mean anything to you? Oh, for sure. First of all, there is a very true stereotype that when you go into certain Jamaican restaurants, typically takeout spots, everybody has an attitude. Everyone's like, oh, we already sold out of that. We don't have it, et cetera. So when you go into a spot and you order your whatever and you're getting piles and piles of meat, you must have it in with whoever's back there because they're usually super stingy and like got an attitude about it, but still want the money. You know what I mean? And it's just, it's hilarious. (laughs) That's hilarious. The comments were like, he's (laughs) cheating. Like the comments were like, this is, I don't need any other confirmation. This much extra curried goat. Oh gosh, that's so funny. Okay. So they're usually like a little stingy, but okay. So curry goat. Yes. Curry goat is my thing, but I mean, there's so many other dishes I can name, but that, that's the one that I have a craving for right now. <laughs> and 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 how many times a week are you working out? On a good week, in a good month, I'm doing three or four times. And so I try to mix it up a little bit because I've recent, not recently, I want to say within the last two years, I've really become more consistent with Pilates on the reformer machine. And I know Lori Harvey made all the girls go and I love that for all the girlies, but it really is an incredible workout because you're tapping into muscles that you probably don't know how to use or didn't know that you were using. And what I love about Pilates is that I walk out of there and I feel really strong. I still do like a 30 minute like hit workout. I do it at home because like I, I don't have a gym membership. I feel lost in the gym. It's not my thing. But I still I don't know if you know or remember Shanti and Insanity. Oh, my gosh. Of course. I used to have the DVD. Yes. So he's on like a beach body app. So I do the 30 minute workout in my living room and it just it, it drags me every time. Like, I don't I've been doing so for years at this point. And every single time I do it, I'm like, how am I still dead? But it works for me in terms of like how I, I like sweat. So I think a combination of that. Pilates. And in the warmer months in New York, I go for a run in a nearby school. So I ride my bike there. It's like a quick 10 minute bike ride. I run, I ride my bike back. So if I can do all three of those things, I'm good. And if I can do those things three to four times a week, perfect. That's the goal. Camille, I feel like you're very self-disciplined. What do you do to just like let loose? I drink a lot of Mescal Negronis or Old Fashioned. That's it's so interesting that you said that I'm so disciplined. That is so opposite of how I feel about myself. I mean, it's it goes without saying. And also, I feel like people that are super ambitious and type A never feel that they're doing enough. It's like sometimes you have to have that outside perspective to be like, oh, wow, I actually do a lot and show up for myself in a lot of ways and hold myself accountable. But you always feel like you could be doing more. Oh, for sure. Another thing I love to do for fun, I love staying connected to my friends. A lot of my close friends don't live in New York. I actually have a couple that still are here that I'm excited about and I get to connect with physically. But just group chats are my thing with my girls. I love that. I love spending time with my my band friend. We spend a lot of time together. We have a lot of fun. We're on the same page about the types of things we like to do. Uh, I have two nephews. And so I love staring at pictures of them, calling my parents a lot more. I try to, in, you know, integrate that into like a fun thing to do because 
they're just different and older now. And I'm like, they're funny. So I try, <laughs> I try to get that going. But I mean, like, you know, I like to, Brooke, I like to be out and I like to be cute. Honestly, that is the best way that I can put it. Like, that's all we want. We just want to be able to have a nice, cute little uh, cocktail on a rooftop and a good outfit and a kiki with our friends. But I, I love to hear successful driven women center friendship as um, core to their well-being. How do you think about making new friends as an adult, but also maintaining bonds with old friends? Because sometimes it can be hard to like remember to take the time to pick up the phone, to call, you know, to call your oldest friend. Um, I'm curious how you think about those two things. I think that, you know, it's hard. It really is, especially because I'm one of the few friends in my group that is not married or have children. So for my older friends, and when I say older, I mean friends I've had since like junior high school and high school who are married and live in different cities or live in farther away boroughs and they have two kids and, you know, they've got a different lifestyle than I do. And so I think, you know, I miss them. Like I miss them all the time. And so it's really just about picking up the phone and they reciprocate that, which I appreciate because I also understand how busy life gets when you have kids and all these other things happening. Life is lifing all the time. So I, I, I had to accept that the what I want in terms of how I want the friendship to exist may not happen the way I want it to happen. And when I say what I want, it's like, girl, let's just go do this or let's just go do that, you know, and it just doesn't happen that way. But I think remaining connected and knowing that your friends are rooting for you and that you're rooting for them as well has been really important. And as far as meeting new friends, I mean, can you think of a friend that you've made in the last like, you know, two or three years that's like completely net new to your life? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I can certainly think of a couple of getting friends. How did you meet them? So mostly through like work related settings. And it's interesting you ask that question because I think, you know, when there are few black faces in a corporate space that is predominantly white, depending on the type of person you are, you're going to look for your people. And so I'm one of those people that's always looking for my people. And I also expect or I also respect the fact that that may not be reciprocated. Right. Like just because you may need that doesn't mean that the other person needs the same thing. So I'm really, you know, cautious about how I, I, you know, hey girl, you know, and so <laughs> when, it, when it's not when it's not reciprocated, doesn't it kind of just make you like a little bit sad or maybe the term is confused when it's not reciprocated? Oh, I was upset. So the reason I have the perspective I do now is because I had this experience when I was in college, and there's I was one of five black people in my graduating class at Sarah Lawrence, wow. and so when other classes came in. And there were more black people. I was like, let's gather. Let's get everyone together because this is going to be tough. And there was this one young woman who was not with it. And she wasn't nasty. But what I learned was, and and listen, everyone, ha- there's race relations everywhere. But her experience growing up in the UK was different than the experience that I had growing up in the US and in the Bronx. Now, did it mean that like I wasn't upset that she wasn't recip- you know, she wasn't open to what we were offering in terms of being like, hey, girl, come sit with us. Hey, girl, what are you doing? What classes are you doing? Do you need? She wasn't really here for it. And I was like, I can't get mad at her. Like, I can't force her to want to do this. Right. So while I have my personal feelings about it, I try not to internalize it or make it about them right. because like. You do what you need to do to feel comfortable. This is what I need to do to feel comfortable. And this is what I wanted when I got here to feel comfortable. And so as far as new friends are concerned, I think most of them I've met through a corporate space or just being colleagues and peers and meeting through other people. And it's just this very instant, like, 
you need this? Oh, I know somebody who, oh, you did that? Oh my God, I just saw this thing or I just heard about this thing. And it's just like organic. And if it's not that, I'm good. Yeah. So it happens organically. You don't make a concerted effort to be like, I connected with this person. I should actually take the next step and invite them out for drinks or invite them to go to lunch. I've done that. Absolutely. But I I think that you get a vibe. You know what I mean? I think oftentimes I've been super lucky because I know that this is not always the case, but like I've luckily been able to assess and discern like a vibe that tells me I need to take this the next step forward. And I think as someone who's like entering into the creator space and like, you know, being very like timid to, to a degree about it, there are a lot of women in the space who are doing incredible things. And I've gone out to events and done a few things and I've ran into them in person and I've like pushed myself to like say hello and introduce myself and like follow up on DMs and be like, it was so good to meet you. And that's new for me, but it's so rewarding when you get it in return. Right. And so I try to lean into that. And then whenever I'm not getting it back, it's cool. Like it's not perfect. You tried. Yeah. I'm so happy that you said that because there's, there's nothing wrong with putting forward effort to build a new relationship. And I feel like some people are, yeah, have some reservations about doing that. But that's, that's, like, yeah. that's how you make friends. Like you've got to, yeah, you've got yeah. to sit somewhere. Absolutely. I've been in New York my entire life, except for when I was in Jamaica. And so I don't have that experience of like, oh, I'm in a new city and now I have to make friends or I've moved to a different country and I live here now. And so now I have to start over and create a network. I don't have that like experience. I'm starting to experience what that feels like now as I put myself out there, because like, honestly, let's help each other. Like, that's really what it boils down to. Like, if there's something that I have that I can give you and vice versa, let's do that. Yes. I have two final questions for you. First, I was going to ask you, when do you feel most beautiful as our as our final question? But before I get to that, you talked about putting yourself out there as a creator. You've been doing storytelling for some of the most known brands in the world. You understand storytelling, but through your you know corporate role, it's not about you. Putting yourself out there to tell your story to an audience, you know, on Instagram, on TikTok, what you know, whichever platform you like. People are very, from what I hear, people are apprehensive about being judged, about looking, you know, being very cringe. And there has to be a lot of work to kind of like get over that in order to put yourself out there. And I'm wondering what the experience is like for you being that storytelling is your job day to day. (laughs) But you said that it's oftentimes uncomfortable for you to do it for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Brooke, I'm literally sitting on a post that I should have shared two days ago. <laughs> I'm like, is that the right? Is it this? Uh, who cares? Like, it, there's a lot of like self-deprecating thoughts that happen before I go and do something, which tells me I just need to do it. Um, and so I think, you know, getting around it has been a work in progress, but I will say going back to friendships, going back to a community, like I have people who are consistently pushing me to do the thing that they believe I can do really well and that there is a space for me to be able to do that. More importantly, though, like, as I said to you earlier, like, I'm not writing scripts right now. This is an opportunity for me to tell a different type of story. Yeah, I need to honor that. And I'm really hard on myself about it because I know what it is when I don't, I, I don't succumb to the fear. And, and I know what it is when I do succumb to the fear. And a lot of this is just scary because it's you. It's your 
it's your face, it's your body, it's your life that you're putting out there and you're putting it out there for scrutiny and criticism, but you're also putting it out there for love and acceptance and validation. And I think it's a mixed bag of things. And so far where I'm at right now, everyone has been incredibly welcoming and lovely and nice. Whoever is saying mean and nasty things about me, they're not saying it to my face, so I don't care. It's not my business. But so far to my face, I have gotten really, really great responses and feedback and encouragement to do it more consistently. And so that is what I'm holding myself to. Yes. And I have found that when you put things out with like good intentions and with the intention of connecting with other people, you kind of always get that love back. So don't yeah. so don't think like the haters are there or like they're going to come. Like, honestly, I'm telling you, like they truly may never come because what is there to hate on about you? You are just fabulous and successful and living your life and sharing. We're here for the journey. So yes, I'm excited about you sharing more. And when do you feel most beautiful? I feel most beautiful when, and this is so cliche, but it's so true, but it's when I'm showing up as me. I've spent a long time, I have two answers to that question. I'll make this one really short, but I spent a long time trying to be something that would make others comfortable. And I think a lot of women, a lot of people, a lot of black women maybe can relate to that too, right? But I didn't necessarily grow up with the most confidence. I didn't grow up with the most sort of like, here, this is me, I have all this to say, but I've always had it inside. And I'm so happy that I've gotten to a place over the last few years of like pushing past that. And so I can show up to the office wearing whatever I wanna wear. When I say whatever, it's like, if it's gonna look like a gown, It's not. But if I want to show up looking fabulous, this is what I want to do. If I want to show up wearing sweats and a blazer, then this is what I want to do. But just like being myself. And I feel the most beautiful when I'm sure about that. And then I also feel the most beautiful when I have my hair slicked back in a bun. (laughs) No, off the face, the bone structure, all of the skincare we're doing. It's like we got to we got to have a moment for the face to shine. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I've loved talking to you and the work that you're doing at Condé Nast is just like really, really incredible. And I'm just excited to be following along and and see the journey. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. This has been such an enriching conversation and I love everything that you're doing as well. So to you, shouts to you as well. So grateful for this opportunity to chat with Camille and get to know her and her work better. I hope you all were as inspired as I was. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I see when you all share, when you tag me on your stories, it really, really means a lot. And the very cool thing is, as I meet listeners, they tell me that they found out about the show sometimes from like a friend of theirs. So they'll be like, oh yeah, a friend of mine sent me the episode. A friend of mine put me onto Naked Beauty. So thank you to everyone who tells someone else about the show. It really means a lot to me to have that organic word of mouth support for the conversations and stories we're telling here. Today's podcast was produced by B.A. Kasanga. Thank you all so much. And I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com